Hello and welcome to the Pondering Scripture Podcast, where we'll open God's Word and let Him guide our lives. I'm your host, Jeremiah Cox. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works, and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. I want us to consider the fact that in verse 22, Abraham is described in his faith as being made perfect. Really, this section of scripture is a discussion of perfect faith. That word perfect or made perfect is a translation of the verb form of the adjective teleos. And that Greek word means complete. Strong defines it as wanting nothing necessary to completeness. And so there is such a thing as a perfect faith that every Christian is called to have by God. And the opposite of a perfect faith is a faith that is incomplete, seeing that this word teleos is a discussion not simply of flawlessness, but more technically of completeness. We can have a complete faith, even though we have sin in the past and therefore can never be flawless, but God calls us to a complete faith. What is an incomplete faith? I'll give you an example in John chapter 12 and verse 42, where John records, Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. Did they have faith? Well, the Holy Spirit records they did. Many believed in him. They believed that he was indeed the Messiah. They believed that he was the Son of God. They saw the miracles. This shortly after Lazarus was raised from the dead, and that fame of Jesus continued to spread concerning his works that were mighty in God, showing he was from God and even was God. But it was incomplete. They didn't confess him. Consider even Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, which tells us, Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. We see there, faith is considered as having two components. You must believe that God exists, 
And then you also must believe that God is a rewarder of diligent seekers of him. And so one may believe that God exists, but then they don't diligently seek him because they don't believe God will reward them or they just simply don't care. Their faith is therefore incomplete. Do they have a measure of faith, if you will, discussing it in that regard? Well, yes, they believe that God is just like many believed in Jesus and who he was. But then they didn't confess him, and the person who believed that God is did not seek him. Such is not a perfect faith, but an imperfect faith. Such is an incomplete faith. And so we want to consider the fact that God wants us as Christians to have perfect faith. We ended last podcast with the understanding that James chapter 2 was written to Christians. It wasn't written as a refutation of the false doctrine of salvation by faith only. We often use James 2 simply for that. And it's a good text to go to, to show that you need more than just assent to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God in order to be saved. And namely, that always takes us to the path of baptism in water in Christ for the remission of sins. But that's not what James 2 is about, really. James 2 is written to Christians who already have been baptized into Christ for the remission of their sins. They're children of God. They're part of the great and eternal kingdom which Christ has built. And they're a part of the new covenant, recipients of that grace that Christ ratified through the shedding of his blood. But here's the problem. James is writing to Christians who obviously are straying in various areas, who need encouragement, but also need admonition. And it seems that James following verses 1 through 13, is continuing to admonish people who are not doing what God's Word says completely. He admonished them in chapter 1 that they need to not just be hearers of the Word, but doers, because only the doers of the Word are blessed. That they need to not hold the faith with partiality, but they need to love both the rich man and the poor man. And so when he discusses this idea of perfect faith, he's talking to Christians and impressing upon them the fact that they cannot be right with God unless their faith is complete. So why the discussion of faith and works? You'll notice verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? This is a discussion, much like chapter 1, of someone hearing but not doing, of someone saying but not doing. And we might refer to the first 13 verses as another description of perfect faith, at least a discussion of it, really a discussion of the opposite, imperfect faith. Remember in verse 8, he said, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to this scripture, you love, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. And here's a discussion of the first seven verses of people who have two visitors into their assembly. One is rich and one is poor. They show love to the rich man, and therefore they would claim, I have fulfilled the royal law. I've loved my neighbor as myself. And James says, if you really did that, then you've done well. But, verse 9, if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So they said something, namely, Someone says he has faith because faith comes by hearing the word of God, and the word of God says, love your neighbor as yourself. I have. They've claimed that. But they didn't actually do it. They only went halfway. In other words, it was incomplete. It wasn't perfect. And therefore, he's saying that such a claim of faith that is imperfect, that only follows what 
it wants to follow, instead of following the entirety of the law, that faith is dead. Now, he gives an immediate example, which actually seems very similar to the real example of showing partiality to the poor man or the rich man and leaving the poor man out. He says, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? And so here is this underlying principle that is understood that when you see a brother or sister in need, that you have an obligation as a Christian to help them if you have that ability. But here's a person who sees that brother or sister in need, and they just simply kind of say what we sometimes say, I'm praying for you. I'm praying that you'll get better. God is going to take care of this. Depart in peace, be warmed and filled. But maybe God's going to help them in that regard through you. In other words, verse 8, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you simply claim that you have faith, God's going to help that brother or sister, but you don't act on that faith by being the instrument God would use, what does it profit? It doesn't profit them, and it certainly doesn't profit you as one who's obligated to fulfill that royal law and to fulfill the law of love that is general in the gospel of Christ, to bear one another's burdens, Galatians 6 and verse 2. What does it profit? Well, such is dead faith. Verse 17, thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Verse 26 says much the same. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. He's speaking of a separation. And so where faith and works are separated, both are dead. Faith without works is dead, and works without faith is dead works. And it's the same way with physical death. When our soul separates from our body, we have died. And so death is much a separation. And that is exactly what he's saying about faith. In order for faith to be alive and therefore pleasing to God, it must be accompanied with works and not just any works, but works that are ordained by God, that we have been created in Christ Jesus to walk in, Ephesians 2 and verse 10. Now notice he goes to an extreme to impress upon us who are Christians that our faith that lacks in works is no better than the faith that demons have. He continues to show what dead faith is. Verse 19, you believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, a foolish man, that faith without works is dead? I'll take it one step further. Satan himself believes in God. Satan not just believes in God, but he has conversed with God. Remember the serpent in the garden and how God spoke with the serpent? Remember Job and his story, where in the background, Satan was going to and fro on earth, seeking a person that he would victimize. And that's when God spoke to Satan, and Satan replied to God. Satan has had conversations with God. Satan absolutely knows that God's existing. But does Satan have salvation? Is Satan justified before God? Same can be said with the demons that serve Satan and his will. They believe there is one God. Consider the old law in a great component of the old law, which was called the Shema by the Jews. In Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's exactly what he said in verse 19. You believe there is one God, and 
as he's speaking to a Jewish audience, maybe he had this on his mind. You believe there is one God, and you likely recite this every day. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, what does that require of you? What are your obligations based on that belief? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. But if you believe there is one God, but you do not do anything about it, you're no better than the demons. I think that we Christians can take an important lesson from this. Sometimes we think that we are well off and we're okay where we are because we believe in the truth. We are a part of the one church. We know denominationalism is wrong. We know that the tenets of Calvinism are wrong. We know that all of the things that we hear from the denominations are wrong, that there is one church and we know and are confident we're a part of that. But sometimes Christians stop there. They think that simply because they have been baptized into the one church of the true Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, that that's it. And automatically, because they're separated from the denominations, that they're okay. But this basic principle James just stated is essentially telling us that if you think that you're okay because of that, but you are not obeying God in all matters, you're just kind of having one foot in the world and one foot out of the world. You're you're unfaithful to the assembly. You you still have some sins you're holding on to. You're you're not diligent and devoted like like you know you should be and you know others are. You know that you're you're paling in comparison to what God calls you to be that you're no better than the demons. You're no better than those in the denominations. God's not going to judge simply based on that fact. God's going to judge even his own people. Hebrews chapter 10 says that very clearly. God will judge his people, not just those in the world. God will judge his people. And if our faith is imperfect, if it's incomplete, if it's lacking, then we're not going to be found just before him because our faith is dead. And so he gives us some very important facts about what faith that pleases God looks like, what faith that is perfect looks like. What is the faith that is alive in contrast to what is dead? Well, notice verse 18. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. To which James replies, show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. What the hypothetical person in verse 18 is trying to do is show that faith and works are mutually exclusive. He's separating the two. You have faith, I have works. And what James is saying is that it's not mutually exclusive. I'll show you my faith by my works. And so if you have faith, okay, show me that. But I'll show you it by my works. Faith and works have to go together. But what works? I mentioned before, any works ordained by God. And we connect it back with the previous part of the context in verse 10. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So how many laws that God gives us do we have to fulfill and submit to in order to have perfect or complete faith? James is saying, if God tells us to do something, or God tells us to refrain from doing something. It doesn't matter how many times he's told us what 
amount of commands he's given to us, we don't get to pick and choose. If you are going to have a faith that is perfect, you've got to do everything God says. Now consider the example he gives of Abraham. Beginning in verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? I want us to notice he uses a legal term in verse 21. He says that Abraham was justified. That's a word which means in the Greek to render just or innocent. And so if we're going down the road and and God gives us a command, if we fail to keep that command, that's called transgression or sin. And we're not innocent. We are guilty. But if God gives us a command and we fulfill that command, then we go unscathed in regard to the law convicting us as sinners because sin is a transgression of the law. But if you've kept the law, you haven't sinned. And so consider that in regard to this context. Verse 12 says, so speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. And in verse 25 of chapter 1, the law of liberty is considered. And it says, the only one who is blessed by that law of liberty is the one who is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. It liberates us from sin. It keeps us from sin. It liberates us initially as we're washed from our sins and cleansed, but it also liberates us as we're free to walk righteousness and do God's will. If we submit to the law of liberty, we are going to be liberated from sin. But only the person who actually does the work is liberated. And so here's Abraham. He's given the command that I know that we're all familiar with to offer his son Isaac on the altar. But if he disobeyed that command, he wouldn't have been justified. It would have been shown that he's guilty. He disobeyed God. But he was justified in the fact that he did what God commanded him to do. It's much the same in what we read in verses 1 through 13. Have you really fulfilled the royal law? Well, if you've shown partiality, you didn't. You didn't do what God told you to do. So are you justified? No, you're actually guilty. But Abraham was justified by works. In other words, he was justified by obeying God. In verse 22, it says, Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? Abraham, is your belief true? Is your trust in God perfect or complete? Well, that's shown by his works. We remember in Genesis 22, at the very first start of the chapter, Abraham is called to offer up his son Isaac on an altar. God says to go to the land of Moriah, and he'll tell him which mountain in that land to to hike up and offer his son Isaac on the altar with. He takes two of his servants and Isaac and and all the wood and necessary supplies, and he makes that trek to Mount Moriah, a, a mountain in Moriah. Not only that, but he makes that that journey, which is not just a quick little journey, but he gets there and he tells his servants, me and the lad will go yonder. And he takes his son and he takes the supplies and they hike up the mountain. And then he builds an altar and then he prepares all of this. He has been obeying God and showing his faith by those works throughout the entire time, but he's still not fulfilled the command to offer his son Isaac on the altar. He's done a lot of good. He's shown God his faith up to this point, but is his faith complete? Well, it's not complete until he's completed the works God has called him to do. That's why in Genesis 22 and verse 12, the angel said, Do not lay a hand on the lad or do anything to him. When Abraham raised the knife to slay his son, he gives the reason, For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now I know. Why? 
because you have completed the works which God has called you to complete. And it's not that he actually did because his hand was stayed by God, but he had already done it in his heart. He was in the process of doing this. And that's exactly the faith that God calls us to have. I'll suggest to you that when God gave the command in Genesis 22, that's when Abraham, before he even made an advancement toward Moriah, that's when Abraham believed what Hebrews 11 says he believed. He concluded that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. But that was not placed on full display until Abraham was up on the mountain and was about to kill his son as a sacrifice for God. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Now, as if that was not enough, he goes on and mentions Rahab in verse 25. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? Consider the faith of Rahab. In Joshua 2 and verse 9, she told those messengers, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. In verse 11, she went on to say, For the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. She had faith. And in Hebrews 11 and verse 31, her faith is contrasted with those who did it. By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. But did you notice in James 2, it doesn't even say that she had faith. It says that Rahab the harlot also was justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. We know she had faith, though, from the account of Joshua 2 and from the account of Hebrews 11. But James 2 is showing that faith that is complete is faith that has works. You see, she showed kindness toward Jehovah's servants. And when she showed kindness toward Jehovah's servants, she showed kindness to Jehovah. But also in delivering the spies, she aided Israel's work in the service of God to subdue the promised land. If she believed that he is the one and only true God and that this is his purpose and who's going to stand in front of God and challenge him. If she believes he truly is the one and only true God, then she's going to be able to show that. And she did. She served Jehovah. She served him by serving those who were his messengers. So she was justified by works. And so we need to understand that God calls us not just to faith. God calls us to what the Bible says is perfect faith. You can't decide that you want to obey all these commands, but these commands over here, I can leave those out because I've obeyed all these commands. That's imperfect faith. We can't decide that we're going to serve God acceptably for 20 years, and then when we get to year 21 of being a Christian, we decide, well, I've done enough, such as imperfect faith. We've got to be complete. We've got to have all the pieces God calls us to have. We can't just major in minors and minor in majors. We've got to major in the entirety of Scripture. We've got to be taking everything God calls us to do, calls us to be, and calls us to believe seriously. I'll point one more thing out. Did you notice that James used two people of faith that are really almost on opposite ends of the spectrum? He chose Father Abraham 
to illustrate that faith without works is dead and that Abraham was justified by works. And he chose a harlot, Rahab, who is a Gentile. Consider the comments of Daniel H. King on his commentary on James. What they share, that is Abraham and Rahab, is the very detail that James is attempting to point out, namely that both the great and the very least of the human family must exhibit their faith through their good works. So next time we see an elder, a preacher, next time we see our grandma or grandpa or mom or dad, next time we see the one that we look up to and our jaws drop at the kind of faith they have, and we think that they're just different from us, that we can get by by doing a little less than they do. We need to stop and remember this passage, that Abraham, the great father of faith, was justified in the same way as Rahab, a Gentile harlot. Perfect faith. Faith that obeys in all points. I hope that you have a blessed day. We'll be taking a break between James chapter 2 and James chapter 3 with a topical study, and then we'll reintroduce ourselves to the study of James with chapter 3, which speaks about our tongue, our speech, and maturity for the man who is able to bridle his tongue. Thank you for listening to this edition of Pondering Scripture. It may be that you have some questions or comments. If so, don't hesitate to email me at jeremiahstancox at gmail.com. I hope you have a blessed day.